Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I am back with another episode in our ongoing bonus series in which I talk with writers, podcasters, scholars, artists, filmmakers, and even musicians about their favorite stories. Joining me today to talk about the 1935 short story The Dark Eidolon by Clark Ashton Smith is Oliver Brackenberry. Oliver is the host of, well, multiple podcasts and also the editor of a new sword and sorcery magazine called New Edge Sword and Sorcery. Oliver, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's awesome to have you here. So let's just jump right into the thing that I think is probably most germane to our audience here and tell us about New Edge Sword and Sorcery. What does that term mean and what is the magazine about? Okay, so the term was coined by Howard Andrew Jones back in the 2000s. Him and a bunch of other uh, author buddies of his were kind of feeling the need to put a shot in the arm of sword and sorcery, a genre that at that point uh, especially was kind of moribund and had been since the 80s when by the end of that decade, it was kind of a, you know, the audience had kind of died off after too many clonans in both film and text. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, they, it was, it seemed to be a little too early, you know, but the, the idea was basically, um, you know, cause it didn't quite pan out back in the mid two thousands. Uh, but the idea anyway was like, Hey, let's take this thing we love. That's been around for a while. Let's knock some of the dirt and dust off. You know, what's the dirt and dust? Well, you know, old attitudes from some of the authors who gave birth to this thing, uh, you know, uh, simply by merit of being men of the thirties, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and just try and create something that's a little more inclusive. We'll bring more people in and try and rejuvenate the whole deal. Plus, you know, continuing to experiment with the form while keeping it recognizable. So to me, in a nutshell, that's what New Age Sword and Sorcery is as a concept. It's just a refinement of sword and sorcery uh, to try and help it be healthier and have it grow going forward rather than continue to be an ever more niche subliterary genre that most people don't even know the difference between it and like Tolkien, right? Because that's another issue with sword and sorcery, unfortunately, uh, in its lapse of popularity after the 80s. The term just got more and more diluted to the point now where, and this is fine. Like I, mean, I say this with no judgment. Um, most people you talk to, you'll be like, oh, do you know the difference between sword and sorcery and other fantasy? And they'll be like, what? I, sword and sorcery just is fantasy, right? Like Tolkien's fan sword and sorcery, isn't it? Like just anything with like a sword or a sorcerer. So that's another thing is I'm hoping that through the magazine, I can do my part to help. Uh, gosh, it sounds so prickish to say educate people, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> that'll be like, hey, you know what? Not to educate them because that sounds like I'm correcting a flaw. It's more like, hey, did you know that like fantasy has a, a specific subgenre that has a lot going for it that's actually quite exciting and relevant to the here and now and has a lot of potential for doing cool new things while still being recognizable as what it is? Well, let me tell you, through through the form of this magazine with its, you know, nonfiction and fiction. So, yeah, uh, the magazine, uh, that is a very new venture, issue zero, kind of prototype promo tool thing, just dropped at the very end of September. I had promised I would get out in September, so on the 30th, I was very happy <laughs> to just make that goal. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's it's basically you know me seeing like, do I like doing a magazine? And the answer turns out to be a hard yes. I really have enjoyed the editorial process, working with the writers uh, to you know sort of polish and perfect the stories and the articles, and working with the artists to illustrate the scenes within those stories. You know, we have all original art for every single one of our stories, black and white illustrations on the inside, nice painted cover on the you know, cover. And it has been priced to be easy to check out. The EPUB and PDF are free. Absolutely nothing to pay to check that out. 
And the soft cover is a mere $3.99 on Amazon Print on Demand. Just go to Amazon, search New Edge Sword and Sorcery, you'll find it. Or you can go to newedgeswordandsorcery.com where we have very easy to find on the main page links to all this stuff. There is also the hardcover format, which is very unusual. That's for $11.99. Again, literally as cheap as we could sell it. <laughs> There's no profit. It was a you know passion project for everyone involved, myself included. But done so in a way that we're hoping that will encourage people to check it out, to tell other people to check it out, pass it around, you know, go for it, um, lend it to your buddy, I don't care, uh, <laughs> in anticipation of us trying to crowdfund more issues to allow us to print professionally, uh, independently of Amazon, because they are a dangerous ecosystem uh, for publishers. You know, there's been some new news with what they're doing with their Kindle and Kindle Unlimited thing that's got a lot of short fiction markets very alarmed right now, but that's another story. So, uh, yeah, my hope is to get as many people interested as possible, get them uh, following us on one of our social media accounts, you know, Twitter, Instagram, and all that good stuff, or our mailing list, which is incredibly low intensity. I have kept my promise thus far. We have sent one email, which was to let people know issue zero was out. And in February, we'll send one, maybe two emails, you know, beginning and end of the campaign. And then if it succeeds, we'll send one more email many months later to let you know the issues are out. <laughs> I am a firm believer that newsletters should just be shortened to the point and let you know something cool and actionable rather than be weekly missives of news that you increasingly find yourself tuning out because we all have busy inboxes. Let me say a few things about what is in the magazine. Well, first, let me say I have the very nice hardcover edition, which is indeed very nice. Like this thing is, uh, you know, it's not just hardcover. It's like almost indestructible hardcover. It looks great on my shelf and it will be something I can bequeath to future generations, which is like a going concern for me. <laughs> yeah. Like the nice thing about hardcover, I think is like, it's, yeah, it becomes, it's for people who like the book as artifact. And I am definitely one of those people. And I'll tell you, we um, are still finalizing our stretch goals, but certainly at least a couple will be enhancements that can only be given to a hardcover like a ribbon bookmark, or uh, maybe we'll do dyed end pages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I love the book as object. Um, so yeah. <laughs> and and the magazine, like the content of the magazine itself is, I think, really fantastic. I mean, it's a, a nice balance of new fiction, also essays about the genre. And you've got some real luminaries in this first volume, especially, I think, in the, the essays about the genre. I mean, you've got Nicole Emmelhines in here. You've got Brian Murphy in here. I mean, these are like serious business scholars of sword and sorcery who've got articles in your volume zero. And I think that's a, a great harbinger of uh, awesome things to come. So I'm really excited for that. Oliver, you just alluded to some really big, shocking news this week uh, about Amazon as a marketplace for people who want to buy issues of, well, I think probably any kind of magazine, really. But of course, for us, the concern is speculative fiction magazines, which is a service that Amazon has been, I don't want to say offering or providing because they are making money on it, of course. But it has been a way to let fiction magazines reach people through a platform that they're already using, which, which of course breaks down some barriers, right, to, to reaching an audience. Amazon is discontinuing that program and doing it uh, at a point where actually many of the magazines and the genres that we love have come to totally rely on that, or at least you know, partially rely on it at any rate. And so, yeah, there's real concern that this is going to be something of a death knell for all sorts of magazines or just ma the magazine industry in general, which of course is already a pale shadow of what it was in, you know, <laughs> a century ago for sure. So, so let me just clearly point listeners to where they can go to, you know, help this magazine, help New Edge Sword and Sorcery come to life. So you're going to you're going to circumvent this new problem by crowdfunding new issues of the magazine. When is that going to be available on Kickstarter for people? 
So yeah, that'll be February 1st that it will go live uh, and there'll uh, be a first day backer exclusive bookmark with original art that will never be shown online, that will never be given away in any other way, shape or form just for that bookmark. So that's cool. And it'll run the month, uh, 30 days. So I guess it'll smidge over into March. Um, it should be available a little earlier in January for people to go where you can just kind of sign up to be notified. But the easiest way to be notified for sure is to go to newedgeswordandsorcery.com, follow the link to sign up for our super low intensity mailing list. Great. And I will have links for all of that in the show notes. I'll have links for the mailing list. I'll have links for the Kickstarter page directly and a few other things that we'll get to as the episode continues. I do too many uh, things. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, so do we. So do we. But uh, speaking of other things, let's uh, transition into talking about today's story, which is The Dark Eidolon by Clark Ashton Smith. I'm going to offer up a very short synopsis here, and then we can just get into talking about this, uh, well, really classic story. And the first thing to say about this story is that it is set in Zothique. Zothique is Clark Ashton Smith's dying earth setting in which the remnants of humanity are crowded together on one remaining continent and they're living with a a, a technology and society that looks a lot like our own ancient world. Uh, You know, thinking of I don't know, ancient Egypt, Sumer, or even ancient Rome, ancient Greece, maybe uh, might be a better analogy there. But of course, this civilization has no knowledge of that history themselves or of our own technologically sophisticated civilization. We're talking about, you know, millions and millions of years in the future. Now, the protagonist of the story is Namira, uh, a sorcerer and a really powerful one at that. The deal is that when he was a child, he was an orphan and therefore he was a beggar. As a child, he was almost killed when the son of the emperor ran him over with his horse because he, this child, had had the audacity to beg the prince for alms. Now, Namira survived this encounter, and somehow, we don't get a whole lot of details here about this, but went on to become a powerful sorcerer. And of course, now he wants revenge. And that is really what the story is about. It's about how Namira tries to get revenge on Zotula, who now rules, is now the emperor. Now, because Namira is this powerful sorcerer, he is also famous. And when he moves into a fancy house, we'll say, next to the palace, people begin to worry. And Namira invites Zotula over for dinner, and Zotula comes with his favorite uh, courtesan. I mean, sex slave is probably like the plainer way to say that, but courtesan is the, the, the term that's used in the text. And Namira imprisons Zotula's soul in a black statue of the evil god Thesidon, where he can see but cannot act. Namira uses his magic then at this point to control Zotula's soulless body and has this body do horrible things to this courtesan. Now, the god Thesidon here now intervenes against Namira. He allows Zotula to control the statue. And so the climax of the story has this giant black statue swinging a mace and in fact crushing Zotula's body. Thesidon then does a soul swap here in which Zotula's soul gets into Namira's body. Namira's soul is now trapped in the statue, which once again cannot move. So that's all kind of complicated, but it's a, you know, a Freaky Friday situation here that involves also a, uh, a black statue here, a giant black statue. But in the end, everyone has gone mad from this encounter, and some of Namira's leftover magic ends up destroying the house where this has all happened. 
And so that's the story. That's how the story ends. And really, I think the first question here, Oliver, is just to say, well, you chose this story for us to talk about. So why did you do that? What is it that you love about this classic story, The Dark Eidolon? I like a lot about it. And this, the phrase, a lot, <laughs> evokes the story <laughs> to me. It has an absolutely over-the-top escalation. It has prose that and actually, I'm curious to discuss this with you uh, a little further in. Um, is it purple prose or, or you know, because if it is, it's the most livid purple. <laughs> you know, this is a story that shamelessly uses phrases like he ruled evilly, you know, like the evil people. You know. um, it, uh, his vocabulary is fantastic and transportive. I really like that. It opens with a promise that it keeps, which is that here's this guy, Zotula. He's the worst He's going to get it. <laughs> He's going to get it from the boy Narthos who grows and changes his name, uh, you know, uh, and becomes the necromancer, etc. And so you're just going to watch and see the specifics of how he gets it. That's the fun. Promise made, promise, boy, is it ever kept. And there's something very satisfying about that. Also, oh, the story is a lot that I like. Uh, it also, this is on my mind a lot as the editor of the magazine, of course. It demonstrates that sword and sorcery can be so much more than the Conan stories that I love, but I think too often people limit the possibilities within sword and sorcery to be nothing but Conan stories or even very certain kinds of interpretations that are actually much more limited than what Robert E. Howard did. <laughs> so, you know, I'm a big fan of Brian Murphy, who you mentioned is in the magazine. Uh, his book, Flame and Crimson, A History of Sword and Sorcery, is bloody marvelous if you want to learn about it. Now, there are many people who love to define sword and sorcery. I've actually joked that a cornerstone of the subgenre is arguing about what the subgenre is. <laughs> um, that itself is very sword and sorcery. But yeah, Howard Andrew Jones has a great definition. Some other people I feel have taken a good stab, but I like Brian's the best because it is flexible. And it has these kind of like seven points that he says, look, if you hit like a good number of these, he, does, he refuses to give a specific number. He doesn't say you need four or five out of seven. He just says, look, if you hit enough of these that it feels right to you, as a reader or an author, then congratulations, you did sword and sorcery. And what I love is this tale is so very different from, uh, you know, bronze skinned barbarian with a sword trying to rob a dungeon or whatever. And yet it ticks every single one of those seven points. It contains dark and mysterious and horrible sorcery. You know, sorcery is not just like a technology that people use that's kind of nice and fun or whatever, you know. It has horror coming out of its boots yeah, that's another that's number two it has an outsider protagonist right this is not a guy of the establishment this is someone on the economic margins who then transforms himself away from the main civilization to come back to it and you know do what he wants to do short and episodic it's a short story of course uh ding personal or mercenary motivations right he's not out to save the world or do anything heroic boysy ever <laughs> this is extremely personal ding um you know people of action again like he's not a guy with a sword leaping from rooftop to rooftop or whatever but definitely he is active he is pursuing his wants through the story he's not passively sitting around kind of moaning or whatever and even you know the last of the seven uh we're having kind of a historical inspiration i can't point to any one specific thing in here but i think as you know uh a white guy in the 30s writing weird fiction like there is some degree of orientalism in it that is drawn from at least his notions of history you know the, tur the turbans and so forth that we have in this trying to evoke an otherness by evoking something that's a little in the past and not north american so it's absolutely sword and sorcery even though at a glance you might be more inclined to call it something else and i love that because it validates me and i'm an only child and i need validation <laughs> uh, it validates my endeavors in the magazine where i'm, I'm I've, i have jokingly described it um 
this definition as almost, or in the subgenre, it's almost kind of like a demented wrestling ring where you can imagine that those seven points I just listed are onto seven posts, clearly marking boundaries. So you, you need to know what the heck it is, right? But what runs between those posts? Highly elastic rope. The, you know, the creators can bend and push outward and leap off of and do all kinds of cool moves. And I feel like I'm seeing that in play here. You know, it, like I said, it takes literally every single one of those boxes. But boy, is it different from a great many other uh, sword and sorcery works. I love these points you're making here, Oliver, about how this you know feels different from our... I think our our stereotype of what sword and sorcery is, because our our stereotype of what sword and sorcery is really is the descendant of Robert E. Howard, right? That's kind of the founding legacy. But you're absolutely right that this is a sword and sorcery story as well. But I wonder if one of the reasons that has happened actually goes back to something that you were talking about earlier when you were talking about the magazine, which is people not even being quite clear what is the difference between sword and sorcery and Tolkien-esque fantasy or what we might call and probably should call, I guess, epic fantasy. And of course, one of the things that has happened in the publishing industry in the last 20 years is that uh, the more volumes you can have in your series, the better and the longer those volumes can be, the better, which of course, that is uh, really the antithesis of the shortness of uh, sword and sorcery stories, right? But one of the things I think that's happened is that the legacy of Clark Ashton Smith, and in particular, these Zothique stories, these, these Dying Earth stories, definitely runs through Jack Vance, of course, right? And his stories that are actually just called Dying Earth stories, right? But even then, he turns to writing novels after he writes his first batch of short stories. So most people who are familiar with those works know it through novels. And then, of course, we have, you know, the absolute pinnacle of Dying Earth, um, laying my cards on the table here, and by which I mean, you know, Gene Wolfe, right? The Book of the New Sun. But then even that inspires a whole new generation of people who are going to write Dying Earth or Dying Earth adjacent stories that are taking something Clark Ashton Smith did, but then inserting that into the tradition of epic fantasy and writing these just longer and longer works where the interest is much more in the world building, right? Exploring the world uh, than it is in these short plots of like, hey, this is a revenge story that happens to have a very cool, very interesting setting around it. But this is a story that at its core, because it's a short story, is about its plot. And I think that that's one of the the things that's happened here to to fracture that is that the legacy of Smith has gone into to novels. And so then people have said, well, that's, you know, that's not a sword and sorcery tradition anymore. And of course, I love Dying Earth stuff. I mean, one of the shows that we do on the network is a Gene Wolfe podcast where we're eagerly anticipating finally, eventually getting to the Book of the New Sun. I'm actually deep into uh, Paul G. McCauley's uh, Confluence uh, trilogy, which is another type of Dying Earth story right now uh, that I'm covering over on another show, ATOS. But I, as much as I love all of those works, I yearn for these types of stories to be back in the short story form. I would rather have one of these a year in a magazine than I would would have a you know a thousand page trilogy and uh, so I hope that New Edge can bring that back for us. I'm somewhat hopeful also uh, not only for magazines and the fact that there are more sword and sorcery markets right now than there have been in a long time. Like I do genuinely think, despite all the challenges ahead of us, we could potentially be on the cusp of a third wave, with the second being the sort of 70s and 80s of sword and sorcery, and the first being the Weird Tales era. Um, I do think we could be on the cusp of a third wave of greater uh, appreciation for the subgenre. We just need to make a lot of people who are kind of, in a way, already into it, like fans of, say, The Witcher, realize, like, oh, wait, no, this has got a more specific name <laughs> and get into it, hopefully. And I think, yeah, like, I, I would like to see more short story markets doing well, of course, but also I have hope for the resurgence of the novella. 
which feels like a nice way of splitting the difference. I like a lot what Tor is doing and how they're realizing, well, hang on, we can still have our cake and eat it too by having series of novellas where each, you know, one is like an episode in a TV series, like, you know, that kind of thing. I think, I think there's ways that we could have this come back. Uh, and I'm very excited to see what, how that's going to evolve moving forward. Yeah, I am as well. In fact, I am a huge fan of novella, both in terms of being a writer myself, but also as a as a reader. In fact, I think uh, at this point, my favorite stories, you know, that we talk about every year on our year in review shows, we rank our stories and our, keep an ongoing list. Almost everything on my list is a novella at, at this point. The novellas have been my favorite things that we've done over on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast as well, because, yeah, you get that, uh, you know, it is the best of both worlds. You can get that rich world building, right? There's room for that. There's space for that. But also, it's something that, yeah, it's like an episode of television. I can read it, you know, it can it can fill an hour of my evening, but then also I can be done with it. And so that's, you know, for an adult with a lot of responsibilities, you yeah. know, like that's a, that's a great thing, right? I think my reading tastes have changed a lot from my own adolescence, where I also was like, I, I wish there were, you know, 20 more of these and they were all a thousand pages. <laughs> yeah, when you're a teenager with like no real responsibilities, that that's a lot easier to find time for. You know, something I often think about when I'm writing my own work and thinking like, how long is this story got to be? I think, well, the longer it is, the more I'm asking of the reader. And the more I'm asking, the more I better bloody deliver. You know, I think people are a lot more forgiving if they read a short story and they're like, you know what? That has some cool ideas. I don't know. One sentence was clunky, but whatever, man, I had fun. And I read it in like, you know, 20, 30 minutes, whatever. Uh, I, I will give this author another shot. Whereas I think if an author is like, hey, I'm brand new. Here's a thousand pages the amount of people that will actually take a shot on that is much lower. And the people who read it are going to be like going, okay, buddy, this thousand pages better be bloody good. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. And so I, I love stories like this that just are, are punchy, uh, you know, get, you know, have a, a, a plot, a story to tell, but then do also engage in all of this world building. But something that jumped out to me as well about this story is that, I I don't know that there are any good guys in this story. I mean, did you have a sense that Smith wanted us to actually be rooting for someone in this story? Or is it the case that just everybody here is bad? I, I think you're inclined to root for Narthos from the beginning because like, hey, rich guy steps on him, you know? Okay, well, screw the rich guy, screw, you know, I'm, I'm here for the, the, the little guy. But the little guy becomes pretty awful. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't know that he's, he was trying to pull any particular narrative trick of like, oh, I'll make you sympathize with the, someone who turns out to be the villain because he very quickly <laughs> becomes villainous. Um, yeah, it's hard to say. I think it's just another reminder that like you don't have to identify with someone in the story. You can just enjoy them. Yeah, absolutely. And I, something I, I liked in thinking about this story was seeing this as a story that grows out of the Great Depression. We don't need to get too much into Smith's biography, I guess. But Smith, like Howard and, and Lovecraft as well, was someone who was negatively affected by the Depression and that shows up in their correspondence with each other and shows up also in the stories that they're writing. And this one has this feel of, hey, here's a poor kid who's been maligned by this rich person. And this is a story about vengeance on that, which I think feeds into a, a deep you know, emotional impulse that a lot of people in well around the world, I guess, in the 1930s were feeling, right? That it's time for rich people to get their comeuppance because what we can see is that the reason that they're rich is that they trample on kids. They trample on <laughs> orphans, right? Uh, yep. And are just terrible people. But I do like that Smith, you know, he, he starts with that angle, but then turns that on its head a little bit and says, yeah, but revenge is not a healthy thing for us either, right? And so he's held up, you know, this this dying earth 
setting that he has here is a real, I guess, red tinted, you know, mirror that we can look in and think about, you know, what is the type of post depression society that we ourselves would like to build? Because it's probably not this one. No. And I mean, for better, or for worse, well, what am I saying? For worse, uh, it is yeah. an evergreen <laughs> story in that regard. You know, as we watch a certain fellow tre- tre- uh, tread all over Twitter <laughs> and other certain fellows do certain things, uh, all billy, all fellows, all billionaires uh, right now, it is a very easy thing to kind of root for this revenge against a, a wealthy emperor type figure. Yeah, I think that there's a real resurgence in interest in these types of stories. I think you know, with with COVID and then all of the the economic uh, consequences of well, various factors of COVID and so on, uh, trade wars, of course, as well, other things that are not necessarily COVID related happening. Uh, yeah, this decade is starting to feel a lot more reminiscent of like the 1930s, and so I think this fiction from the 1930s is having sort of a new valence for us. That certainly, when I was reading these stories for the first time in the late 80s and the early and mid 90s, you know, did not have. These were just fantastical stories that didn't seem to have a lot of relevance to my daily life. But I'm reading them now. I'm thinking, oh, right, I, I get this point of view. Yeah, I would like Sword and Sorcery to have a resurgence for uh, different reasons than us doing right. a, 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 a rerun of like Weimar Republic era going into depression. But <laughs> but if that bad stuff's got to happen anyways, can we at least have some good stories come out of it? <laughs> Yeah, strangely, I mean, the, the the interwar period for all of the, the awfulness, the suffering that people went through is for me actually one of the like creative heights of modernity. Uh, that's very strange. And I, I don't want to build out any kind of uh, theory that in which uh, great art requires great suffering. So therefore, oh, we should no. have more great <laughs> suffering. That's not an argument I'm putting forth here, just to be just to be clear, though, mm. it is one that, that that shows up. In fact, it's an argument that actually shows up in the correspondence of Clark Ashton Smith, H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard. And uh, that I think is actually really quite interesting. Maybe one more follow up question here, Oliver, just on the topic, though, of of you know Namira's revenge. I mean, this story ends more or less like the fall of the House of Usher. So you know there is no day after here. But Namira's plan was not to die in search of his vengeance. His plan was to live afterwards. At least that was you know my sense of it. But I don't have a sense of what specifically was the plan. You know, after that, what was he going to do after he had? Uh, disposed of Zotula. Was his plan, you think, to become the new ruler? Or was he just going to, you know, sell his house here, his nice house, and, you know, move on and go do other necromantic stuff? Yeah, I don't get a real sense of like a lifelong pursuit of knowledge that would have continued afterward, you know, or something like that. He doesn't, you know, he he's a character of a short story. He exists entirely within the bounds of this thing. And thus, uh, you know, he doesn't seem to have anything of him told to us that isn't relevant to his quest for revenge. Maybe he privately off page really likes baking and he was going you know, <laughs> to have, have a big bakery run by a whole mess of terrifying skeleton beasts. I don't know. But I do get the impression that though it was definitely not a suicide mission, it, there was no thought to anything else. It consumes him, right? And it's kind of like, yeah, I like how ultimately his revenge is so pointless because uh, Zotula like doesn't understand what's happening. Like you know, I I have like a printout from the website, <laughs> so uh, Eldritch Dark, I think it's called, uh, where you can read these for free. So my page numbers mean mean nothing. I, I'll, I'll leave those out. But I've got it somewhere along here that, yeah, like as he as he's like, hey, guess what, Zotula, I'm back and I'm doing this to you. And look at those giant horses I summoned stepping all over your city. Screw you. Screw your city. And Zotula is described as just like being aghast at what he's seeing, but not hearing a thing that is being said to him. 
So the revenge never really seems to click with him. He just is like, oh, no, bad things. And then gets, you know, <laughs> and told to drink poison. And oh, crap, I'm out of my body. Oh, crap, this is happening. Like, he doesn't ever seem to comprehend what's happening. And isn't that what you seek when you want revenge on someone? You want them to know. You want them to get it. You want, you know, it was you and it was for this reason. And you should have done better, you jerk. Uh, so the revenge doesn't even seem to pay off. And then he, you know, even the satisfaction on, um, I always want to call him by his his beggar name, Narthos, from the beginning because I stole that for a villain in my role playing game campaign. Sorry, bloody <laughs> <laughs> um, hell! What's his what's his name proper? Uh, uh, Namira, Namira. Pardon me. So Namira himself, you know, through the events of the final uh, page or two, there forgets what's going on when he gets booted back to his old body uh, after having uh, piloted uh, Zotula's and getting its head caved in by Zotula piloting the statue, uh, the Eidolon. Um, when he goes back to his body, he's kind of messed up by the experience. And so he's not even sure what the hell is going on or who he wants revenge on. And, uh, you know, he, 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 he goes to a mirror and he beats the hell out of it thinking he sees Zotula. But then he's like, wait, is, it, is he Zotula? And I'm the necromancer or is it the other way around? I don't know. I just hate the guy who, who I'm seeing. Breaks that sort of pieces. And, and ultimately, by the end like everything is just wiped away and and he you know the satisfaction he had uh performing it is gone and the satisfaction he hoped to have of the person he's taking revenge on understanding what happened was never there so did he want something beyond this i don't know because he's so every angle of what he is doing is so annihilated it's hard to see anything beyond this point in the story you know, beyond the end of the story I, I just think yeah he doesn't exist beyond the end of the story regardless of what happens uh because of how the story was crafted yeah it seems like he was always going to be consumed by this this unhealthy quest this unhealthy desire for for his vengeance and uh and maybe just a pro tip uh in a short story you don't need to have your protagonist change names like just just pick one name and stick with it for the for the sake of uh, for the sake of readers yeah, they both begin with the same letter too, which is tricky. Like uh, Narthos to Namira. If it had been Narthos to Zoinks, let's say Zoinks, the, the, the necromancer, uh, you know, I would remember that a little easier. But yeah, though, to be fair to Clark Ashton Smith, he could not have predicted that I was, would have stolen the first name for my role thinking campaign. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. But I will say too that there wasn't any real plot reason, I think, for that name change because, as you've just said, Zotula just doesn't even like remember this encounter at all. So it's not like he needed to change his name to really change his identity or something. No, it's like kind of a that. Batman thing almost, right? He goes off and he trains <laughs> and he comes back to clean up the city, but clean up in this case means summon giant horse things that destroy it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but otherwise it is, I mean, exactly like Batman. Batman also a pretty good case study in um, go to therapy instead of, you know, <laughs> engage on your embark on your your revenge plot. Uh, Oliver, I have to say as well that you uh, maybe inadvertently there just invented a TV show that I would love to see, which is uh, the Great Necromantic Baking Show. Uh, that's a competition <laughs> that's, that needs to happen. Well, you know, my mind went to baking probably because, well, I, I don't want to skip ahead in your format, but um, my favorite scene in this whole thing is absolutely the feast. And within that, a particular point that I'll zero in on later when we, if you want to talk about like specific passages. But the the feast, I really love it because it's it's funny, you know, my personal tastes, uh, whether it's in how I write or my what I like to read or how I run my role-playing game campaigns, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, producing or consuming, I tend to lean towards stories which you might think of in, in role-playing parlance as like low-powered, you know. Not that nothing fantastic ever happens, but that the fantastic is truly rare and strange. And in between those you know, rare points of the strange and fantastic happening – People live pretty mundane lives and have to work really hard to be able to get any kind of reward or become good at something. I, I tend to shy away from stories where people are very wish fulfillment kind of characters and everything glows. 
So what am I doing loving this story, which is the epitome of more is more? I think I think uh, this story, I love the more is more of it. And I love the feast in particular because that just feels the most intense more is more to me because it so fully commits and so makes it clear from the beginning of the story that what you're what you're getting that I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm here for this. And it's actually quite fun and quite amusing to try and even follow the escalation while reading the purple prose. You know, I just was rereading um, the Ursula K. Le Guin essay from Elfland to Poughkeepsie recently, which for those who haven't read it, it's free online, by the way, from Elfland to Poughkeepsie. Uh, Google it, you can check it out yourself. In a nutshell, that essay is Ursula K. Le Guin saying, look, if you want to write fantasy and you want to transport people to the fantastic to another realm whether it's you know historical or secondary world like this or whatever for heaven's sakes write it so that you can't just swap out the names and uh, place names and have it be a contemporary story you know make the language different whether that's a faux shakespearean thing or your own invention whatever but just please make me feel like i'm somewhere else not just modern day but you know some swords and sorcery um clark ashton smith is infamous for, for doing this. And uh, well, he's famous, I would say, uh, in literally in, in certain circles for doing it. The infamy is the people who try to do what Clark Ashton Smith does and and maybe don't land it uh, and trying to copy his voice rather than create their own. But yeah, I love, love, love The Moors War in this because it transports me. And it, his prose is a big part of that. And yeah, I'm kind of babbling a little bit. Sorry, from just you mentioned the baking thing, but like there's a lot, yeah. <laughs> like, but it kind of works in a way because you kind of just like that's how I experience story almost. Like I just swim in it uh, in his phrasing and the fact that like oh now there's a giant skeleton with a running tongue and baleful pitch burning in its skull eyes saying come to the party later, uh, you know, and then oh now there's a uh, you know shades uh, reanimated of uh, the people that the guests have screwed over, you know, him with his dad, uh, the slave woman Obexa, who you're inclined to be sympathetic to until you're reminded that oh yeah everybody's evil. Like literally says that, you know, page one, everybody's evil in Zylac, including her, because, you know, she found some slave boy and like took her pleasure with him until she got bored and then turned him over to torturers <laughs> to like check out how that would go. Uh, and so there's his shade, you know, serving her dinner. And just, you know, that scene in particular, the feast overall, it just makes me think of the most demented, like, Eastern European sort of late Soviet period animations <laughs> that, uh, you know, just, just everything looks a little different because it's not what you're raised on as a North American boy in my case anyway. And, uh, and then just more is more is more is more. I, I, I love it. And I think it's because it's so committed, but also underneath all that more is more is more, you have the simplest, most easy to understand framework. And I think that's something that maybe people who imitate Clark Ashton Smith or uh, and do a, a, maybe not the best job or just authors in general who are like, you know, here's the world building. They're just like large piles of details on top of you uh, while you read. And I personally find I get overwhelmed by that a lot. You know, recently I actually had the good fortune to interview for my uh, podcast, Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection. Kim Stanley Robinson. And we were talking about climate fiction, completely not what we're talking about here today. But the point of connection is that at one stage in the interview, we were talking about world building and the challenges related to climate fiction. And he said an interesting thing, which was he felt that even the, the term world building was almost like, it's like a misnomer. It wasn't really the right thing. You just wanted to talk about setting. What is world building but setting? And and when you call it setting, it kind of reminds you that it's not meant to be the foreground. You know, the point of the story is not the setting. The point of the story is the character and like what's happening with them and how you identify with them and so on. And here, Clark Ashton Smith does a very good job of using the very straightforward revenge plot, the kind of vaguely Batmanish thing we have going on here, as a real, you know, long straight steel bar upon which to hang all the ornamentation, all the what we would call maybe world building, 
uh, and all of the purple prose. And I think the reason that the purple prose in the world building works is because it is hung on that straight steel rod of guy gets stepped on and says, I'll step on you, and then spends the rest of his life working to that. <laughs> Yeah, I'm excited to hear this Kim Stanley Robinson interview. You told me about this before we started recording. And as we are recording, it's not not out yet, but uh, Being as we're releasing this, yeah, should be should be out. So I'll make sure I have uh, links for that in the show notes as well. That podcast that you do, Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection, is actually one of my favorite podcasts. Maybe we should pause here and just, since we've brought it up, let people know, like, what is the Merrill Collection and what is that podcast about? Right. Okay. So the Merrill Collection is one of the absolute literary treasures in all of North America. It is the Western Hemisphere's largest publicly accessible archive of speculative fiction with over 80,000 items across horror sci-fi, fantasy, all that good stuff. And all you need is a library card to go in and say, I would like a first edition of Blah Blah Blue. And they'll be like, we have it. <laughs> uh, you can now read that in the collection for your own just good times. Or of course, it's a magnificent research tool. It's how I've been able to read all kinds of out of print essays and books and so on related to my uh, sword and sorcery scholarship of the last few years leading up to the old magazine. And it was founded by uh, a combination of the Toronto Public Library System and author and editor Judith Merrill uh, with her first, I th- it was either five or 10,000 items, I can't remember, but she basically provided the original kind of like seed uh, that has grown into the 80,000 plus items back in, I want to say, 1970. Yes, 1970. And yeah, so yeah, that exists in the Lillian H. Smith branch uh, in Toronto. Come check it out. There is also, uh, it's for you, if you don't live in Toronto and are thinking, why are you telling me about this? They do digitize items. So it is worth Googling them and looking for their digital collection, which is smaller, but they're building it. Anywho. I have been a volunteer with the Friends of Merrill, classic library support group kind of thing. Uh, then one of the things I've done in that group to try and raise awareness of this incredible treasure that even a lot of writers in Toronto don't know about still, sadly, is do the podcast Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection, which it's in the title. You know, it's an ad for the collection, essentially, but each episode is an interview and it is me sitting down to discuss one facet of genre fiction uh, with Stanley Robinson there. It was climate fiction, as you can imagine, with his most recent book, but other ones, I, I did an episode with Brian Murphy about sword and sorcery, for example, and so on and so forth. Uh, Gemma Files, we did Haunted Houses. Yeah. Uh, so there's two seasons of eight episodes each and this sort of bonus extra thing that we grabbed because I was going to turn down the opportunity to interview Kim Stanley Robinson. <laughs> uh, that will hopefully go up uh, before the end of 2022. Like I say, it's being edited now. Yeah, fantastic. And as I said, I, I do love this show. It's a great, great show about speculative fiction. I mean, as you say, you you interview all these writers about different genres, other topics as well. And listeners probably don't know this, but I actually spent a summer in Toronto as part of my graduate training because the University of Toronto uh, puts on one of the premier courses in medieval Latin, which is you know something you need to do as a, be able to do well as a medieval historian. Uh, but a big draw for me was actually that I got to go hang out in the Merrill Collection of few times while I was there. Uh, bigger draw, maybe only because it was around the corner, uh, was the Baca Phoenix bookstore uh, that specializes in speculative fiction. But in any case, Toronto is a real, um, I mean, it's its a real place of pilgrimage, I think, if you're interested in speculative fiction and especially enjoy you know, books as artifacts. Uh, so something I recommend the show, but I also recommend you know, Toronto as a destination. Yeah, no, Baca Phoenix books is a wonderful, uh, I believe it's the longest running still extant uh, sci-fi fan bookstore uh, in North America. And uh, they have a long reputation of working closely with the Merrill and the Friends of Merrill. Uh, no, they're wonderful people there. And also, uh, despite COVID and everything else that's happening in the world, Toronto continues to have a fairly rich collection of secondhand bookstores from which if you want to go hunting for, say, 1970s uh, doll paperbacks uh, related to sword and sorcery, as I've been doing, uh, it's a good place to go plunder. 
Yeah, and also just, you know, if you are really into speculative fiction, which I guess if you're listening to this, you are, I will also say that huge parts of the University of Toronto campus have uh, have been used in Star Trek uh, lately, since most new Star Trek <laughs> is being filmed in Toronto. So you can oh, give, well, a, yeah, give yourself yeah. a tour the, for that, too. The campus, uh, Lillian H. Smith Library, in, in which the Merrill Collection is placed on the third floor, has had all kinds of filming. Umbrella Academy's had a lot of filming there. And uh, yeah, Toronto is regularly used as a stand-in for the future and or New York. <laughs> so Roy, Roy Thompson Concert Hall, you'll see that all the time because it's a slightly, you know, uh, loopy, strange looking building with lots of glass. And so it shows up all the time and stuff like The Expanse is like, this is the future. <laughs> well, before we get uh, too deep into uh, doing the Toronto's uh, Bureau of Tourism's job for them, <laughs> unpaid, I should, I should add, uh, I want to go back to really what led us down this path, which is you talking about the writing in this story, which, hey, that's the thing I think that, you know, Clark Ashton Smith is really known for that. I think where he stands out from other writers who published in Weird Tales as being just this phenomenal wordsmith. But of course, you in particular have a real interest in writing because you are a writer, but you are also not just writing a novel. You are also doing a podcast about your experience of writing a novel called So I'm Writing a Novel. This is going to prompt me to ask you another question about The Dark Idolant. But I think before we get to that, just tell us about the the podcast and I guess also tell us about the novel. Okay. So the podcast is called So I'm Writing a Novel, and you can find that all the places the podcast get distributed. Just search the name or go to so I'm writing a novel.com. Links galore there. And yeah, it came out of me writing what will be my third novel when it's published, when in whatever form that ends up taking. And I, after my, my experiences with the first two, you know, the first volume, uh, Junkyard Leopard, uh, that was kind of a horror novel. And I got it published with a small publisher, but ultimately my experience with that uh, could have been more satisfactory. The second one was a coming of age novel called Of Dice and Men about a nerdy teenage girl who's into role playing games. That uh, I tried self publishing and it felt like uh, the world's most unsatisfying blog post. So I thought to myself, okay, I, I need to do something different and I don't want to gamble, you know, oh, well, the next book I'll sell to one of the big four or five publishers, whatever we're at now uh, with mergers. <laughs> uh, so I was like, what can I do to boost that and also like do what I like to do anyway, which is talk about my work and uh, but maybe put it out to an audience instead of exhausting my partner. So I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll do a podcast where I take you through the journey of me writing this thing. I keep exhaustive notes when I do outlining and preparation and writing for a novel. Why don't I take that, chop it up into bite-sized sections and turn it into interesting like subject-driven episodes that will be interspersed with interviews with people primarily in the genre of the novel, which is sword and sorcery. I'm essentially trying to do with this still untitled novel, God help me, uh, titles come late for me usually, uh, with this untitled sword and sorcery novel that follows a sort of island barbarian named Vo, a big rosy river-sized woman uh, with a big warhammer who goes off thinking she wants to become a hero at the beginning, but very quickly her life takes different turns. It's written as a body of short stories. Uh, 17 is currently the plan, with one of them being novella length, essentially a kind of stitch-up, you know. Um, I, I forget how much you guys have talked about Liber or Moorcock on here in terms of their sword and sorcery work, but perhaps you already covered the fact that their bodies of work started as just like, I don't know, whatever, I'll write some stories. And then later they went, oh, I'm going to stitch this together and write connective tissue stories to make a grand continuity, a grand saga, or like how Lynn Carter and Elspeth Camp did that with, uh, you know, Robert E. Howard's Conan stories, which were never meant to be a big saga uh, with the much maligned, but also much loved Lancer paperbacks of the 60s and 70s. I'm doing a simulation. I'm doing a speed run to pretend as if I've been writing Vo's adventures for 60 years. <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm, I'm trying to create a novel is essentially a kind of a faux stitch up following her adventuring career over sort of four quarters of her adult life. 
so yeah, so that's that's kind of the novel and the podcast is me talking about that and the things that I come into uh, through my research for that and my work on that. And then in between, I do interviews with people primarily within the sword and sorcery scene. There's quite a few authors. Some uh, magazine publishers have started to creep into the mix. I'm hoping to do more next year. And when the novel's done, maybe I'll do season two for the next novel. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I hope you do. I really love listening to the show. I'm excited about the novel as well. But I will say that the podcast is fantastic for people, well, for all sorts of people, people who are just interested in speculative fiction. But I think also it's particularly fantastic for people who are are writing, uh, especially people who are, are are getting into writing for the first time now or pursuing it as you know a hobby as opposed to you know trying to pursue it as a, a profession. And I think it's fantastic for for all of that. So again, I will have links in the show notes for all of these things. But uh, well, I guess now, Oliver that you have established your credentials as someone who really thinks about writing. What I want to know is, do you have a just a, a favorite passage from this story that you, know, you could read into the microphone for listeners and that we could digest a little bit together? Okay. So I mentioned uh, earlier the feast. I particularly like that. I found that um, of anything in this made my imagination sort of turn on the, the movie and get going, which by the way, oh, the, the idea of a movie too. Uh, I found a quote from Michael Moorcock from 88, calling this story, you know, the apex, um, for me, the apex of horror is achieved with the uh, dark Eidolon, the tale of a childhood injury avenged on a scale which would tax the visual resources of a major studio. And for a half second, I imagined a modern movie, but then I was like, no, no, imagine Cecil B. DeMille's The Dark Eidolon. Imagine it's being done with like rear projection, projection and models and all that stuff, like around the same era when it came out. Like, imagine this came out in 35. And you got the movie of it in like 38 or something. I just I just want to put that to listeners because that delighted me. Anyway, so yeah, this passage is from The Feast. And it is when, you know, Zotula and Obexa have been like, okay, you know, kind of like gone in to, to attend uh, what they've been invited to. And they're sat down and then they get the surprise of who is serving them. Then Zotula perceived that a dark and corpse-like hand was pouring wine for him in a crystal cup. And upon the hand was the signet ring of the emperors of Zylac, set with a monstrous fire opal in the mouth of a golden bat. Even such a ring as Otula wore perpetually on his index finger. And turning, he beheld at his right hand a figure that bore the likeness of his father, Pythaeum, or Pythium, who knows, after the poison of the adder spreading through his limbs had left behind it the purple bloating of death. And Zotula, who had caused the adder to be placed in the bed of Pythium, cowered in his seat and trembled with a guilty fear. And the thing that wore the similitude of Pythium, whether a corpse or an image wrought by Namahira's enchantment, came and went at Zotula's elbow, waiting upon him with stark, black, swollen fingers that never fumbled. And it continues from there. I mean, it, you know, Clark Ashton Smith is nothing if not loquacious, but I particularly like that section because of just the fun of, you know, you, you, you were told this earlier in the story that he has poisoned his dad and like, you know, everybody just says it just happened, a snake bit and whatever, man. But like, it's very clear he did it. <laughs> and so it's, it's a very fun, like, oh, he's going to get it, like turning point here where it's like he's being, he's having his past crimes rubbed in his face. And that's a further escalation of the whole thing where from the very beginning, we knew this guy's going to get his for what he's done. And yeah, he stepped on this guy, or his horse stepped on uh, this guy who's come back to get him. But let's not forget, he also murdered his dad to take over the kingdom. So why not have his dad's corpse serving him? And just this description of you know how rotten he is, and yet how precise with these black, swollen fingers that never fumbled. I really think that's part of the uncanny with the undead, the fact that they're falling apart, but they're going to get you. <laughs> they're moving extremely precise. I like that. Yeah, the the visual elements of this are 
phenomenal. I mean, you just feel like you are here. I mean, the way that that Smith sets this scene. But I do also love, you know, what you're pointing out here, I think, Oliver, is really that this this could be a scene from Dante's Inferno, right? This could have been one of the visions that Dante has as Virgil is showing him around hell, that this is the special torment of a particular sinner. This is the special punishment of a particular sinner that you're getting to witness in hell. But here it's it's inverted because it's not that it's not that Zotula has been brought to hell, right? It's that Namira, because he's a necromancer, has brought hell to earth. He's brought hell to Zotula. Tula, which is such a cool inversion. Now, of course, it doesn't work out for Namira either, right? This does, you know, these are forces that you should not mess with, obviously, right? That's that's a big part of what what Smith is doing here. But it's so unsettling, even as it is gorgeous in its just the you know the beauty of the writing is there, even as the ghastliness of the scene is also there. I think this passage that you've selected here, Oliver, is I think a great representative uh, or a great representation of you know what it is that Smith does so powerfully, does so well, this thing that Smith has done that has really, really captivated readers for almost a century at this point and, you know, launched an entire subgenre of speculative fiction that is still alive and well. May I put in a sort of very short uh, sort of second place? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we love reading text into the microphone on this show. Yeah, no, I dig it too. Uh, (laughs) All right. So leaping back a little earlier in the story to where uh, Namira is meeting with the Dark Eidolon, which is the way he communicates with his sort of dark patron, uh, Poseidon. Uh, I just like this little detail of the room in which he meets with said patron. Before the black armored image, there hung seven silver lamps wrought in the form of horses' skulls, with flames issuing changeably in blue and purple and crimson from their eye sockets. Just a great image. Just just love that. One of one of a many dozens in the story, but yeah. Yeah, it really is. And of course, that's exactly how I would have decorated my room when I was a teenager if I had had, had a budget to, to do that or the ability to do that. It's perfect. It's just funny, you know, because I, as I read the image and I was like, I was like, I love this, but also in a, my head, I can see a lot of bad like black light posters and, you know, heavy metal album, whatever, you know, using that kind of, <laughs> and it's this kind of thing where you, you kind of have to remind yourself, like when this was written, none of that was there. I think one of the great challenges uh, is very rewarding and worth taking up when you consume older sort of primal texts is reminding yourself, yeah, all the references and riffs that you're familiar with as a person of the present, their future, weren't there when he wrote this. And then it can kind of like pull away a kind of gauze of reference of nostalgia, whatever else, and let you see it all the clearer. And I like that. It's It kind of comes to what I really love in Sword and Sorcery right now. And what I'm kind of an unofficial guide, like for authors, I'm going to you know have in my magazine, which is deconstruction and satire are all well and good. I do feel, though, that you can only say so much with either. And ultimately, I'm far more interested in sincerity. And so I'm always trying to find that sincerity in the uh, text. And for me, when I read something like, you know, silver horses skulls with burning multicolored fire in them, um, I can say it in my head kind of like I just said it there. You know, I can be like, oh, yeah, you know, whatever, man, like I'm riffing on like this, this, this aesthetic. Or I can just peel all of that away as best as I can and just read the words and really hear them and really let myself be in the room and enjoy them perhaps as they were received when they were first put into the world. And I, I, I put that to anyone listening. I, I think it's one of the best things you can do when you're reading sort of primary older texts. Well, I think that is a beautiful sentiment to approach any story with, and uh, I'd like to think that that's uh, an approach that we take here on this show, which uh, you know, <laughs> in which we uh, we gaze at century old, two century old stories sometimes, and try to approach them from that 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, pardon me. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I really like the elder sign uh, because you you guys are speaking from a place of genuine appreciation and love. I think you don't put uh, unnecessary distance between you and the text via irony, satire, deconstruction, etc. Like, I'm not saying that those things have no value. I just think that they have limited utility, and so I'm far more interested these days in in going to that that sincere place and really putting my face up against the glass rather than sitting back with my arms crossed with a kind of ironic remove. You know. Yeah, I think that's a much better way for people to engage with, certainly with literature, but honestly, it's just a better better way for people to go about engaging with the world at all, right? You know, be sincere, be who you are, uh, approach things positively, approach every situation positively as opposed to negatively. I mean, there's a huge impulse, I think, that um, certainly exists on the internet in, well, uh, lots and lots of iterations, too many iterations of just ripping things apart, being really, you know, mercilessly unkind to them in a way that's not even meant to be useful, right? Just in a way that's meant to take down for the sake of takedown. And, you know, I'm saying that as someone who absolutely was pretty merciless, actually, with another Clark Ashton Smith story <laughs> that Brandon and I covered here, the the door to Saturn that we just did not like, though that was after we had already done at least one Clark Ashton Smith story that we loved. And this story is fantastic as well. Well, why not? But so, I mean, even, even when you were tearing that down, though, right? Like, it was coming from maybe a sincere place of like, well, here's what we think didn't work and here's where, where it unintentionally made us laugh. Whereas like if you like I think you read it and then that was your reaction. So like it's all good. Like it's not about always being positive or accepting everything as being good. That's foolish. It's no such thing. But it's like, well, if you're gonna spend the time with the text, really try and keep an open mind and try and be like, okay, what was a value here? And if you can let's just say pull away those veils of nostalgia, irony, satire, then maybe you'll find it. Maybe you won't. I mean, like, oh, wait, no, this is a turd. <laughs> and I'm going right, to make right. fun of it. Because we all get <laughs> yeah. to enjoy that cathartic energy of just like, yeah, this friggin' sucks. And I'm going to rip on it for 20 minutes. You know, we've all been there. I certainly do it. But I just think, yeah, when I'm privately on my own reading, it's like, why would I, why would, why would I, why would I settle for like the cheap, easy calories of, of, of coming in ready to laugh at something, ready to have that distance between me and the text when I could maybe get the meatier, more nutritious meal of going, okay, but why? Why is it pretty cool that we've got these silver horse skull lamps? Like, let's just really marinate in this. <laughs> but I think now that we are I don't know, putting out a, a program for how to read, how to engage with stories and, and zooming out again, I think this is a good place for us to close out our episode. Oliver, let me say thank you so much for guest hosting with me today. Oh, it was a pleasure. I'll come back anytime you'll have me. <laughs> well, if you, dear listener, would like to talk about this story with us, I hope you will drop by the forums at claytemplemedia.com, or you can come by our subreddit. And be sure as well to go and uh, sign up for the, the newsletter and also the Kickstarter notification for New Edge Sword and Sorcery magazine. And of course, also, please, please do consider supporting the Kickstarter so that we can continue to have great sword and sorcery stories in our world. You can also subscribe to Oliver's podcast. I'll have links for those and also for all of the things relevant to the magazine in the show notes. Uh, Oliver, where else can people find you on the internet to keep up with what you're doing? Well, the absolute hub of all the stuff, podcast, magazine, writing, blah, 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 all my stuff um, is my name. Oliver Brackenbury, B-R-A-C-K-E-N-B-U-R-Y uh, dot com. Oliver Brackenbury dot com. From there, you can find everything else I'm up to. And actually, I, no, I just realized I was like, and actually to the to the absolute latest hottest off the press thing, just this Friday uh, of our recording, the latest issue of Whetstone Magazine, a sword and sorcery short fiction magazine available for free online 
came out featuring my uh, latest sale, a story called Hunter. Uh, only 2,200 words. I encourage people to check it out. <laughs> Excellent. I'll have notes for all of those things in the show notes as well, so listeners can do exactly that. And Brandon and I will be back here with our regularly scheduled episode on February 7th. That's going to be A Victim of Higher Space by Algernon Blackwood, uh, talking about another important genre in speculative fiction, that is occult detective, something we love very much. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.